Investing, Retirement Planning, and Estate Planning 101. Speaker, Mr. Jason Chestnut, Director of Gift Planning, University Advancement. Wow, um, we grew from three or two pretty early on, four to the whole room four. I appreciate you all um, being here uh, this morning. I understand coming back to reunions, I had my 15th and was, even though I work here, you know, back on grounds and thought I was in grounds and in college shape and ended up on the corner getting a Gus Burger. And so I understand uh, the effort it might take to come in there in the morning and hear, uh, hear about it. State uh, retirement uh, and investment planning. So I'm going to walk through quickly. This isn't a cumulative learning session. I'll talk about a little bit about what it's, what it's not. Uh, it's not a high-level investment analysis. We are going to talk a little bit about portfolio construction some fundamental things that I learned early in my career that I think everyone should be employing if you're not and your financial advisor isn't talking uh, to you about your investments in this regard. They should, you should talk to them about it. Uh, complex retirement planning. We are going to calculate your retirement number. And for some, uh, that might be the most important thing that we do today. For others, uh, it might be the most boring part of the, of the seminar where we're going to walk through the actual derivation of the calculation. You are back in a classroom at the University of Virginia, but we'll do that uh, quickly. And it's not comprehensive estate planning. I don't get into discussion uh, above the estate tax level. So uh, it it did say 101 on the seminar. For those who came and and want to stick around, I'll be sticking around a little bit after the session. We can have uh, a few of those discussions. But what we will learn, I want you all to leave here with a uh, reputable resources and information to take back to your financial advisor and set those expectations if they haven't set them for you. And say, you know, this is, this is what I need. This, I went to UVA, I heard this lecture, you know, let's talk about our relationship. Let's talk about what I pay you for. Um, how to calculate retirement number I touched on. And then again, we'll just do in fundamentals of estate planning. So I'm going to give a little bit of information about what I think every person should have surrounding them as far as their experts, their professional advisors. We'll talk a little bit about uh, common investment vehicles, and I'm going to get you all to talk amongst each other, introduce yourselves quickly, and then share some success stories and things that you've learned over your experience that might be beneficial as well and maybe more beneficial than than things that you, you hear from me today. Uh, then we're going to talk about retirement planning and uh, as a CFP practitioner, you know, what the CFP board believes that you should be doing with your clients and the process to walk through those and the subject areas you should be covering. Uh, then we're going to get into portfolio construction. We're going to talk a little bit about investments. Then we're going to do the retirement number. After the retirement number, we'll do some common estate problems. After that, we'll touch on charitable planning in, in your estate planning. Might put a little plug in there for UVA, and that's what I do with my, my job. Uh, and then we'll talk about common problems that people, uh, or, or that cause problems when it comes to estate planning. Um, and I'm letting you know the order in case anybody needs to, to sneak out towards the back. So here is the typical setup that most people have. With you in the middle, you have a tax advisor, hopefully, a legal advisor, a financial advisor, um, and then you know you go see your doctor and your healthcare professionals. That has a huge impact on what happens with your money. But I would challenge you to get plugged in. Okay, 
there, there's a much bigger team that you need. And some of these, you, you may or may not have heard the terms or have them in place. Uh, executor, you know, that's a person that carries out your estate plans. Uh, charitable planning, that, that factors in when you're putting into these documents the items and values and things that are most important to you in life. Uh, how about a healthcare advocate? You know, do any of you, as you age, have a, a good friend, best friend, that you're comfortable sharing your health information. Some, most of the time it's your spouse, but if you're not uh, married or you don't have a partner, you need somebody as you hear all this complex medical information, especially if there are medical problems, uh, with you in the room to help reinterpret uh, what you're being told. Uh, CPA, attorney, you know, estate planning attorney, yes. Are they an expert in elder law? This field is growing and exploding, and it should be as we're living longer and we're encountering more issues. Financial advisor, and then your family. You know, and I have them up top because most of the estate planning problems in that process come from either poor communication with family members, most of it comes from zero communication with family members. And you may say, I'll be dead and gone, I don't care what happens in the family, they start squabbling or they have problems with the plan that I laid out. You know, that's what I wanted done. But I think it would work a little bit better if you started to dispel some of this information. And you don't have to do that comprehensively. You don't have to say, here's what my net worth is. But it's a good idea to meet once a year, to have a family gathering. And it usually starts with the kids where you, you start to talk about charitable giving or values and things that were important to you. And it's amazing how those conversations can bring people together. And then you can start to talk about, well, here's what I've done and here's why I've done it. You know, I've, I chose Jason as the executor instead of his brother. These are the reasons behind it. You know, if you, if you don't want any problems and you don't care, you know, um, I'm just telling you, it, it does cause issues down the road. Uh, but if that's the attitude, you know, that, well, you don't have to disclose any of that information to them, but it does help. Um, so I'm going to ask for a little bit audience participation, shout out, hopefully you're awake, you know, and, and think about what was the first investment that you ever purchased. Anyone? Savings bonds. Savings bonds. CD. CD. 401k, what's in there? Mutual funds? So stocks, bonds, savings, corporate, CDs, mutual funds. You guys hit them all. Uh, I'm going to stick on mutual funds real quickly and, and cover um, what I wish was told to me early on when I was investing in my first retirement plan and something I think that everyone should just gain a little knowledge about. So how do you, how do you determine what you buy in your retirement plan? One of the most important things, you either ask a coworker or you just look at the historical averages. You say, okay, 10-year, what's the highest one? All right, that's the one that, that I'm going to own. So this, I know you can't see this, and I'm going to stick on this long, but this is a fact sheet for a mutual fund. They're produced quarterly. You can look them all up online. The circled portion is where I'm going to focus, and that's the returns, and that's where you do focus when you're looking at your retirement plan. They're the one, three, five, and 10-year returns. So I've highlighted the three-year return here at 7.31%. 
And why did I highlight the three-year? Because they give you a standard deviation for the three-year return at 7.17%. I know it's going to be a little confusing because they're both seven, but stick with me. 7.31 is the average over three years. The standard deviation is 7.71. So why is this important? Standard deviation is the variance around the mean. Okay. So what we're really, really bad at when it comes to investments is gauging risk. All right. But if we see the fluctuation, then we can kind of select what's more suitable for our risk tolerance. So standard deviation within one unit means 68% of the time, around that three-year average, you're going to be within 7.17 units. So that means that this investment vehicle, 68% of the time, will return 0.14 to 14.48%. All positive return, no negative. Yeah, that, that might be suitable for me. So two standard deviation units is 95% of the time. It's going to return within two of these units. So that means it's going to be from negative 7.03% to 21.93%. Everyone will love 21.93%, but can you tolerate that 95% of the time you might have a negative 7% return? And there's no guarantee that each year is not going to be different. So uh, 99% is within three standard deviation units. So that's what I get people to focus on. Can you tolerate a negative 14% to a positive 29% return? And that gives you a better gauge of this investment vehicle. Now, there are, you can't look at it in absentia of all the other uh, items. You know, that helps you evaluate risk a little better. But you have to know what you own, why you own it, what it's invested in, what its investment objective is. But that's one of the tips that a financial advisor told me very early on. And he said, walk down the hall and ask every single advisor if they tell their client that. And, and I'll guarantee you that none of them ask that question. So again, I just covered uh, the standard deviation. And the average numbers, the only thing I'll say about that is uh, very deceptive. Over the long term, you can get a better feel for average numbers. But remember, in that fact sheet, what you want to look at is the actual money and how it's growing over time. Now, I selected this vehicle because it's also established in 1948. So it has a longer term track record. And in this example, they show you if you put $10,000 in there, at the end of the quarter, you would have $7.3 million. So, and it kicks off about 7% in income and reinvests it. So that's one of the reasons why it's uh, cumulatively so high. But when it comes to those, those uh, averages, if you have $100,000 and you lose 50%, you got 50 grand. The next year, you do have 100% year. How much money do you have? $100,000. But what's your average? Like a 25% return, but really zero. You've got none. Um, so again, over time, you know, those will play out and be more accurate. So I'm going to take 10 minutes, a quick 10 minutes. It's 9.42, um, 9.52. And if it's quiet, then we'll start over again. But just turn quickly to your neighbor, front, back, side. Say hello. Tell them what year you are, where you came in from. And then let them know. What are the two or three helpful lessons you learned, either about... Uh, investing, well, let's stick with investing, not retirement plan, but that you learn about investing that you can share with others around them and, and maybe save them some pain and some trouble. So if you don't mind, 10-minute exercise, break up this me talking.
All right. Uh, no, no war stories, but is everyone getting a turn? Yeah. I just want to check. No war stories, but if everyone's gotten a turn, um, the earlier I get out of here, the, the, the better you'll think of me. So, um, if if people don't mind sharing, you know, very quickly, what were some of these lessons that might help others in the room when it comes to, again, investments or investing? Anybody comfortable? So it's save and invest early and regularly, you know, compound interest. That's an extremely important point that a lot of people skip. Your goals, your objectives, are your time horizon. Notice he didn't say anything about your age. And a lot of people skip that as financial advisors, and they have rules of thumbs based on how old someone is. But what if I'm not going to spend any of my money and it's for the grandkids? What is their life expectancy? How many years is that? How should I have it invested? So anybody else? We just talked a little bit about how you can get too many different fund, too many different accounts spread out through different providers and that sort of thing. It's a little bit easy to lose sight of what your diversification actually is. Yeah. You, know, you have you know, your 401ks with this guy, and then you got an IRA with this guy, and you got something else with this guy. Well, they all could be like completely overlapping. And so we talked a little bit about how all of us have had different experiences with consolidating, just to get a little bit better visibility, if anything. Yeah. Yeah, so that was having accounts all over the place in different, um, not only places, but you're getting different advisors and different advice on those accounts. Remember when I talked about standard deviation? Does anybody know the standard deviation of their portfolio in total? Institutional investors do. Uh, and it's very hard to get that. What is my risk when you have it all over the place? So there was a, a law that separated some of these different um, practices in insurance and investment and retirement, uh, estate planning, et cetera, and Glass-Steagall, and it was refuted right when I was coming into business in the late 90s. And so... People think of having the money spread out as alleviating risk when in, in reality it really made it difficult to have a comprehensive plan. So you were able to consolidate some of these assets. Financial advisors love that. Of course, they would like to manage all of your money. Um, and if you have a good advisor, and we'll talk a little later, if they're, if they're doing all the things that they're supposed to, then they would uh, warrant their fee and they wouldn't have you know, many issues paying them. They wouldn't just stick on investment return because you'd get all these other services that are coming with it. So anyone else? The standard deviation, that's not a though, is it? No, it's usually based on performance. So it's that variance around past performance, so the average. Yes, so the fact sheet. That is the name of the document, and it's a one-pager usually, and it's very small print as we, you know, we'll look, look back at it, but um, the, the information uh, down here in the corner, sometimes it's in the bottom left corner, and it'll have standard deviation and other measures of risk, and uh, easy thing to do is go to investopedia.com, look up investopedia.com, look up those terms that, that are talking about risk, and then that'll put it in context, you know, and return, you know, as well, alpha, Things like that, sharp ratio and things like that. If you wouldn't mind, it would be helpful if you could repeat the question. 
Okay. Okay. Sorry about that. She was um, she was asking if standard deviation was in the prospectus, uh, and the fact sheets where you got to go because it's based on past past performance and around the mean. Okay. Moving into financial planning. So, uh, does anybody here? And I don't. Do you have an investment policy statement? If you do, raise your hand. I'll be very impressed. You got one. It's got an investment policy statement. So what the heck is that? Okay. This document contains important information. Your time horizon for your goals. Specific data to you as an individual. Are there investments you don't want to own? Are there categories you do not want to be in? Are there restrictions on your advisor that you want to place that will have an effect on the return? You know, your risk tolerance, how do you, how do you determine that? What is the methodology of, of determining that? And then are you going to agree upon that? You know, do you agree with it and, and, and put it down in a document? Um, rebalancing guidelines uh, and some of the strategies and, and I would say methodologies that you can implement in any market condition. It's all guided by this document. So the formal definition, and this does come from Investopedia. Uh, dot com, but it's the written expression of your objectives, risk return, along with any constraints in their implementation, governs all the investment decisions for the client, and outlines the responsibility of the client and the, and the planner, and has a means of evaluating investment performance. So when you sit down with your annual review, there's no question, you know, how am I determined if this uh, woman is doing a good job for me as an investment advisor? You know, we've already have it in your investment policy statement. How you're going to be evaluated. So those are some of the things that I just just touched on. Uh, any do-it-yourselfers in the room? All right. Yeah. And the biggest mistake do-it-yourselfers: no investment policy statement. So what happens when you've had a four-year run and the market's doing great and you want to keep what you has been doing well? You have a document to go back to and say, "Hang on a second. You know, I I, I set this document in place when I started this. I've been updating it all along." Every year, once a year, hopefully. And now I'm straying from my own, what I told myself I would be doing, and, and, and sticking to my principles in, in investing. So I would challenge you all to go back and think about some of these items and, uh, and put it down on paper. So the uh, financial planning process, this is according to the Certified Financial Planning Board. So this is what they require CFP practitioners to go through with their clients. These are the six steps. I'm not going to walk through every single one of these steps, but some of the most important part, I think, is up front and on the end. When you're establishing and defining the client-planner relationship, you want to understand how you're paying for these services. And most financial advisors will either tell you, hey, it's free, or they're charging you a fee and you have investment vehicles underneath of that fee, and none of those fees were discussed either. So those are the two most common things. So you, you want it in full disclosure, you know, how I'm going to pay you fine, but how much and how am I paying you? Am I, am I paying you a comprehensive fee and then there's a decreased fee for some of these vehicles, and then what is that fee? Is it hidden? It's not coming out of a visible bill, but it is being charged to you within the investment vehicle. 
So this is an important step, too, is when you're laying out your goals and your objectives, because this is something you're going to have to review every year, and hopefully, you know, this stuff will change. Uh, the markets and your investments can only do three things. We'll touch on that later, just three. And in every single scenario, you want to know what you're doing ahead of time. You don't want to be confronted with uh, an event in the market, a catastrophic event, where you see your investments decrease you know, a third or more in a short amount of time. So they're going to analyze and evaluate all the information that, they, that you give them. They're going to come back with a formal presentation. They're also going to have alternatives if you decide that there are certain things you don't want to do in your, in your investments or if your retirement plan. And then you agree to implement them. And then you acknowledge any restraints that you've placed on the advisor, the practitioner, in writing. And then the most important thing is how are you going to monitor these and how the heck are you going to call me in the middle of the day at 3 o'clock because the market closes at 4 when I got... I'm either at the job, at work, and tell me to buy another stock and to sell my most favorite investment that I've owned. And I had no idea the call was coming. And that is, you know, kind of commonplace. That's how things are still done in that world in business. But wouldn't it be nice if you said, here's how we should communicate. If you're going to make any investment changes, here's how I prefer that you contact me. I prefer a phone appointment. I prefer we set it up on text if it needs to be done immediately. You know, I prefer to do this at 2 o'clock. I don't want to do it at 3.30 when the market's closing. You're going to freak me out. Uh, I don't want any, t- any pressure. But more importantly, you know, are we going to have a process of rebalancing systematically uh, these investments, and how is that going to work? So the different subject areas, this is just on CFP.net. Uh, these are the different areas that your planner should be covering. The first two, insurance planning, risk management, Um, I find interesting because most people are either uh, pure insurance folks and it starts from that side of the discussion about risk and insurance as a vehicle to use in planning, or it's on the other side where the financial advisor says, yeah, so many people are asking me for long-term care insurance. I might as well get licensed and get paid on it and I'll sell a long-term care policy. Uh, What you really need is someone looking comprehensively at your uh, disability coverage, which is extremely important. Do you get offered term insurance through work, and how much is that as a multiple of your uh, of your salary? And then why are you even buying insurance? You know, insurance is there for two main reasons, in my opinion. One, to replace your ability to earn money over your lifetime. So how much money and potential do I have to earn in my life expectancy, and then maybe I buy a face value policy for that. But it's more important to look at the objectives. Do I want to cover my mortgage? Knock that out in case I'm not around. Don't want to take care of the kids through age 18 or through college and pay for that. You know, let those objectives determine how much insurance uh, that you're going to buy. Uh, employee benefits planning can get really, fairly complex, but you need somebody well-versed in that, especially when you head into your retirement years. You get to that magic number, which is not 59. It's 59 and a half um, for whatever reason. But if you get near that retirement age for plans when you can take it out without the 10% penalty, you need somebody that's well-versed in, in your benefits planning. So, again, investment planning, income tax, retirement estate, that's kind of the stuff that we're, we're talking about here today. I'm going to shift uh, back to investments. If, humor me, I am not going to do a great job on covering all the investments that are out there. Again, this is kind of a, 
a 101, but I do find it interesting that most people know stocks and they look at the stock market. Um, they have some knowledge of fixed income with bonds and savings bonds, and there are some other categories we'll talk about. And then they, they leave out their home equity in their, <laughs> in their residence, and not everybody owns a residence. A lot of people rent, a lot of people live in cities, but if you do have that, that's generally a big portion of your nest egg and, and your cash. You know, so stocks, bonds, and cash, you know, that's what most people's portfolios are comprised of. If we talk about fixed income really quickly, uh, does anybody know how interest rates work on price? And you'll see in the top corner I have a, a, a seesaw. If you think of the fulcrum as time, so as you go out on the seesaw, you're, you're expanding the length of time all the way to, let's say, 30 years is out on those, those ends. In this category, I've listed some of the fixed income instruments. It's not all of them. These are typically the ones that people own. And they think of them as pretty safe. And I hate that word when people say fixed income and safety because right now is the perfect scenario for when it is not safe. So does anybody think we're in a really high interest rate environment? No. Where are, where are we? So, so some, some, one, of, one of these two on the seesaw butts is almost on the ground, all right? And that side of the seesaw is interest rates. Price is on the other side of the seesaw. And price is way up. Because if you, believe it or not, had bought some of these investments, especially treasuries, you're doing fairly well, especially right at the crash. They're in higher demand, so people want them, and that's why the price goes up. But at some point, and they've been saying for three and a half years now, the interest rates are going to rise, but at some point, they are going to rise, and they're probably going to rise dramatically. So then what happens to your friend price? And that's one where the, all of a sudden the interest rate kid shoves off the ground, and price comes slamming down. So even if you have these in your retirement plan and you're in fixed income category, those managers don't have a finite end timeline for that bond to mature if you own an individual bond. They do have a length of time that they invest to called duration, and that's kind of the length of the average that risk that's managed in these fixed income pools. But if that kid pushes off the bottom and those investors come same, you'll see those prices drop just as drastically as you can in the stock market. And some people haven't been through those interest rate cycles, so they don't believe that that's possible or can, or can happen. So I'm going to um, quickly talk. If you remember, uh, Abby, I forgot to get you. No, you, you're good to write for me. So you don't have any jobs. Sorry. Um, stocks, bonds, and cash. I have the triangle up above. Does anybody read the Wall Street Journal? A little bit? I mean, you know what it is. And they talk about, in the Wall Street Journal, what? What investment categories? Anybody. Do you hear about oil? Price of oil and how it fluctuates. Currency, the dollar, and how it's doing. Interest rates. Other indices around the world. The price of gold. It's been very popular over the last three, four years. So these are investment categories. And if you own stocks, bonds, and cash, and none of these other investment categories, then you don't have, in my opinion, a comprehensive portfolio. So you have to think, you know, where do they fit in my investment portfolio and how do they fit in my investment portfolio? So down the, the, the bottom, if you can think of, you know, fixed income is, is down there. Before we get to uh, the split up six areas, here is where I get into equities, and I'll talk about value and growth quickly. 
So those are just two categories. There's different types of investments you can hold. This is, again, oversimplification, but, uh, but humor me. These go in cycle, kind of like sine and cosine, okay? They don't always have to be down or up positively. They can both be moving in the same direction. But generally, one is out of cycle with the other. So, and they're different types of companies. So if most people buy an index and they buy, you're familiar with the S&P 500? So that's 500 stocks. They're the 500 largest companies in market cap. If this is small, mid, and large size companies on both sides, the S&P 500, you've invested in that in a comprehensive portfolio. So you need to own these other categories, again, in proportion. So as we go up the, up the triangle, and in theory, you know, the, 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 the more liquid and perhaps uh, have more variation in price are down lower, and then as you get up, those investments are less liquid, uh, so you can't get out of them as easy or sell them or find a market price. But the top part we didn't even cover was some of those areas that I just, just talked about. So... You know, you may have uh, real estate investment trusts that are up there. You may have an area of managed futures, and managed futures is interest rate, currency exchanges, metals, um, indices around the world need to be in there. And then you have, I'll just call alternative investments up here. And that's where you can get into, uh, my ranks horrible, and that's why I have this, uh, hedge funds, co-investments, partnerships, Things like that. So institutions own these, and we have the ability to own these. They are scalable now. Um, so that's a comprehensive uh, portfolio. So quickly, know what you own in that Franklin uh, mutual fund. Look at the objectives, see what it owns and why it owns it, and, and then know why you own it. So what does that? How does that fit in my portfolio? Why is this recommended to me? If those two things are explained to you, if your advisor calls you at three o'clock at work and says, "Hey, I want to sell some of that." You know what they're talking about, and you know why you own it. So it's easier to make that decision. Um, the three things that I mentioned earlier, market can do, it can go up, or your investments, you know, it can go sideways, uh, and it can go down. So if it goes up, great, but what are you going to do about it? Are you going to rebalance? Are you going to do what everyone teaches, sell high? Or are you going to hang on to your winners and then wait for an average of one every seven years, a catastrophe happens in the stock market. Are you going to wait for that to happen and then catch you off guard? Now, if you move sideways, you do lose time, but you still should be speaking with your advisor. If the account hasn't changed, there's still the, the, the uh, environment has changed. So you still should be speaking to them about what change, changes should be made. So I suggest rebalancing systematically, strategically, whether it's within a certain percentage it's out of the range of what we've allocated or whether it's you're the, hey, I want to uh, rebalance every quarter. It's statistically, once a year, they found, has an impact on the performance of the portfolio if you, if you uh, rebalance once a year. So invest across the asset class. And then if you're in your income uh, years, then you want to take from some of your winners, you know, your income, or just uh, liquidate some of those assets and use that to pay your salary if you're retired and replace that. Okay, so that's a question. I, I thought I heard you say both rebalance once a quarter and once a year. Sorry about that. A lot of people implement a once a quarter rebalance strategy systematically, 
minimally, I would suggest once a year. So you can do once a quarter. When they look at the performance, the effect it has on performance, statistically, you have to do it once a year or it drastically affects it. But the once a quarter versus once a year, if you hit that catastrophe uh, that happens, a 9-11 happens, uh, or you have a financial credit crisis, your advisor calls you and says, we just did our annual rebalance, but guess what? It's once every seven years. We need to rebalance again. You're, you're going to say, go for it. You know, I understand. It's, a, it's an anomaly. So uh, that's the difference between the quarter and the once a year. Um, if anybody falls asleep during this, you can take a little nap. I'll wake you up after we get through the, the calculation for the retirement number. I couldn't get internet access, but I love those ING commercials where they're walking around with four or five million dollars under their arm, and they're like, yeah, this is my retirement number, and, and I'm looking at it saying, how the heck am I ever going to save a multi-million amount of dollars uh, to hit retirement? That, that didn't make sense to me. And how, how do they come up with that number? So that's what we're going to talk about right now pretty quickly, and it's a simple calculation. Any uh, financial planner... And, and there are apps that you can put on your cell phone um, to have a financial calculator put on the cell phone and then use the uh, time value of money calculator to figure out what your retirement number is. So in this example, we have... Um, oh, and by the way, I have these sheets. I didn't pass it out because I didn't want people to be... They're down here at the front. They'll walk through this example, and on the back, it'll have... Because it took take a little bit too much time... It'll have, you know, what my retirement number is, then based on the amount of money I have now, am I going to be able to hit that number? Am I above it? Am I below it? If I'm below it, then I have a number to shoot for. How much do I have to put away per year to get to that number? And can I do it as a set amount, or can I do it as an inflation-adjusted amount and add 3% each year and then have it equal the same number? So that's a little extra step that uh, people can pick up from me, but it'll take a little too long. So Donna's 35 years old. She's married to Frank. He's 37. They've determined they want to retire when Frank hits 65. They also are a good, have a good financial planner who has worked through a budget with them. They know what their uh, fixed costs are and their variable costs are. <clears throat> and they've determined that they need 52 grand in today's dollars. They're going to get $14,000 in Social Security benefits. I did have a Social Security question earlier. So those sheets they mail you each year that you just throw away or you stick in a folder, that's what this is going to be used for. So look up what you're expected to receive per year, and that'll give them, in today's dollars, how much they need, 38 grand. So they've determined Donna's life expectancy is to 95. She's got good genes, no health issues in the family. She's living to 95 years old. Their pre-retirement earnings are 9%. They said, we've, we've been able to achieve that. We think we can achieve that. Their retirement earnings that both of them decided, well, once we're retired, we want to we scale back the risk because we're retired. Okay, so we're going to earn 7%. We're going to change our portfolio up. And I'm uh, being a little demonstrative because we'll talk about that when you, when you actually look at how much time they need to invest. So the first step is to draw this out. It's really, I'm a visual learner. I think if you see how many years and when you're going to make these changes, it's helpful for the calculation. But again, they're shifting their whole portfolio risk and down, um, I would say, uh, decreasing a little bit their potential return. Why? Notice how many years combined they're going to be invested. 28 plus 32? 60 years. So their objective is 60 years 
away, which is to have zero dollars the day that Donner hits 95 and passes away. They've invested perfectly for retirement. So that's this kind of scenario is draining down to zero. And you can add different timelines for your, for your objectives. So the second is to calculate how much in today's dollars would that, uh, in future dollars, would that today's amount of $38,000 be? So you just need to take, I took 3% inflation rate, all right? I don't know, uh, since World War II, the average is like two and a half. Um, so I just used three, because a lot of people now are saying we're going to head in higher inflation rate. Anyway, so we use three, we plug in, N is our number of years, I is our interest rate, we're not taking any money out for a payment, our present value needed $38,000. Make sure this financial calculator is set to the beginning mode. It's important. And then the future value we're going to need is $86,900. Okay, so now we know how much is going to be needed that first year of retirement, eighty-six dollars So now we want to determine, well, how much money do I have to have saved that I can allow me to take that and cover my expenses every year during retirement? So this is the second part of the or third uh, step in the calculation, draw it out, determine the future value by inflating it, and then now we're going to see how much money we need to save. So this is the only part of the equation where people get a little wiggy and they look at this and say, what is that? But if you really break it down, it's just this small formula down here. You're looking at the inflation-adjusted interest rate. So you're taking your expected return, 7% over the inflation rate, and minus 1 times 100, you're coming up with 3.88. And then you plug it in the same formula, essentially, with uh, your payment now equaling the 86.9. Your future value is zero, because in this scenario, we're draining it down to zero the day that she uh, dies, and we're going to be doing that for 32 years. So walking around with $1.6 million number that they need to save in order to achieve these objectives. So you can easily figure out your retirement number, hopefully, now. And then I have these uh, sheets down here that you can pick up and has this calculation on it. So any questions about the retirement number? Or anything so far? The first part of that, you said yes. the 9% assumption rate? Yes. And so that seems like a big number. I see advertised by T. Rose Fidelity and all of that. Okay. Um, is there some place out there that shows us what a group of investors have actually done over the last 10, 15, 30 years and where you might fit. You kind of look at yours and see where you might fit within that spectrum, yeah. whether you top 10 percentile or 10 percentile. Great question. So 9 percent looks like a high number. You know, how do you know if you're doing well as far as your investment returns? What do institutions do? And that's how I, so by the way, I must full disclosure, I'm a liberal arts grad. I was told by many, many people, most that didn't go to Virginia, they didn't know what I was going to do with my biology degree when I graduated. So you can do just about uh, anything. And, and I didn't know anything in the investment world is the point. So I looked to institutions. What does our endowment do? What do pension funds do? Okay, They have an indices that they're compared against. And they break apart the percentages and the ranges that they can compare against those indexes. So you might have the bond index for return, the all-country index. You might have... Um, if you're in the endowment, you know, have some of these other alternative investment uh, indices that they compare. And then that mixture of them gives you a blended return over time. And you look at like a 20-year average, and you look at how have I done against that expanded average of time. And that should give you a good indication of how your portfolio is doing or how you're doing. 
you know, a rule of thumb, people will say, nine is a little high, eight, you know, and then you look at historical averages, look at the Lehman Bond Index, you know, what has that returned over time since its inception? You look at the S&P 500, what has it done since its inception over time? Now, again, we're in, we haven't gone through all the ups and downs of that and maybe haven't lived that long, but that does give you a good starting point. And I think if you look at the allocation of those indices in a uh, theoretical model portfolio and then what that blended rate is and then look at how am I allocated. And if you're close to that, you can compare the two. And if you're not, you have to find the mix and what, what am I compared to. And that might surprise you as well. Because you might say, my portfolio actually looks like it's all in the S&P 500 and in none of this other stuff. Hopefully that helps. So it doesn't sound like then there's something out there that says, here's what this group of investors have done. The top 10% have done this. Top quartile have done this. Bottom quartile have done this. You don't have that out there. I'm sure it is. but okay. um, There's no website here. No. No. Yes. Uh, in, the, in the same vein, uh, whatever that assumed rate of return is, with the blended rate, in this case 9%, I think it's important probably to realize from an investor's perspective, from a personal perspective, uh, it has to be net of cost. So if you're paying what seems inconsequential 1% or 2%, right. you're reducing that 9 to 8 or 7 Yeah. and compound interest can make a dramatic difference over time. Yeah, cost. 28 years. Cost is the number one uh, reason why these returns, you know, it's the only thing coming out of there. Uh, if you own an index, you own the index, but there's still some costs associated if you're getting in, in a vehicle that owns an index. Um, yes, that is very important. And again, you must know how much you're paying. So at the beginning, you need to uh, have that clearly explained with you and your, your advisor. So I'm going to, um, it's 10, 16, I want to leave. We'll probably have like five minutes for questions, and then I'll stick around. Um, so I'm going to shift gears, if that's okay, and talk a little bit about estate planning. I had that I would cover this topic. But some of the common problems um, that we run into with estate, um, estate planning, old or poorly executed documents. So what would I call old? So you should review your will, your trust, your beneficiary designations for all your retirement plan and your insurance plans every five years at minimum. Again, like the one out of every seven-year rule of thumb, if you have a life event, you have a child, you get divorced, you sold your business, you need to go back and see your uh, attorney, hopefully your legal counselor, and, and redo these plans to fit your objectives if they don't, at least evaluate them. So um, that's the number one thing I recommend is every A, to have one, okay? A lot of people say, I don't need it. I have an uh, I love you document my spouse. It'll go to them and I'll be gone. And, you know, that's fine. I'm not worried about it. But do they care? Uh, there's some things that they need to know. You know. Where are your contact information for all your stuff? Where's an itemized list of where it's located? Um, you know, help, help them. And this is part of the estate planning process. Uh, you know, help them think kindly of you after you're gone. And if you, <laughs> if you set it up for them to, in this very difficult time, uh, if you make it easy for them, you know, that's, that's why we do the estate planning process. So wrong family members in key roles. Um, some horror stories there. I will spare you those. But make sure that you have very competent people in those roles. And if they're not family members, you know, I'll probably advise them not be family members. Um, but if you have family members you trust or perhaps our financial advisors or do this for a living, 
Uh, you need to have that discussion with them. Are they willing to accept this role? Sometimes they're named in documents and they have no idea that they're, they're going to be asked to be the executor. Um, poorly drafted plan, your family's fighting afterwards. Uh, again, some people, they'll be gone, they don't care, but for the most part, you're doing this planning, so it'll be a smooth transition. Uh, no documents, we've talked about that, or family members who are confused because five years ago you told them one thing, then you went back and changed your plan, and then now they're getting a percent less because you have three kids and you gave 134 instead of 33, and they're angry about it. That's actually not a bad thing because some of these things play out during your lifetime, then you're able to adjust your plan accordingly, and it might have a big effect on how you have things set up. So again, this is a quick, big slide, I understand, but... Um, these two I want to focus on. They're a little oblong. This, these are all the things you need to be doing with your estate plan. But the list of contacts I touched on, this one is, is a little crazy to me. Who would have thought that after you die, your loved one would be burdened with your cyber life, your cyber presence, and closing out your Facebook account and your Gmail and calling those companies to try to get them to do it, and sending death certificates and proving that they're having passwords. It is a bear. And I have some alums right now who are going through this at a, at a very difficult time. And they have never been online. And the, and, and the companies, unfortunately, they haven't set up departments to really make this uh, easy to do for these, um, these loved ones. So wills, trusts, beneficiary forms, Power of attorney, healthcare, medical directives. You, know, you want it clear. You don't want ambiguity in any of these plans. You want it very clear of what you want done and, and have a competent person there to carry out these wishes. So here it comes. Yes, charity. The University of Virginia is a 501c3. You will get a tax deduction if you give to us in your lifetime through your estate. There are many things you can do for charitable planning, not just the university. But again, you put in that will and that trust in those estate documents, your values and things that are important to you in your life. Okay? And you want to pass that on to others that are important to you. And that's why you put it in there. But there are things you can do with retirement plans, real estate, um, gift annuities, your, your investment strategies that coordinate with your tax strategies. Uh, it, did anybody see the bottom there? So a lot of people don't know, you can make a gift to charity, and they'll pay you income the rest of your life. There's a couple charitable vehicles that do that. And there are ways to set it up in your estate, and you, their, their trust is just a term, it's just a governing document, but there are charitable trusts as well. And you can put money in a charitable trust, pay your spouse the income the rest of their life, take care of the kids, and then ultimately come to a charity. And sometimes you don't get a tax deduction for doing it, because it's not officially a charitable trust, but it is professionally managed, it's cost-effective, and you can um, be confident that your plans will be carried out because there's a trustee serving as has fiduciary duties to follow that trust document. So that's that. If anybody's interested in the income stuff and calculating, that's what I do for the University of Virginia, and I'll be up front and be happy to send you something. And then in closing, it's 1022. I'll have you out of here pretty soon. Um, what I thought were some very important things but often ignored when it comes to estate planning. The number one reason that the validity of a will is challenged and the courts uphold it is because of the incapacity of the person uh, making their documents. Now, that can mean different things to different people, but the loss of their ability to handle their affairs is what the court deems. 
and they have a lot of leeway. You know, if you can prove that, you know, Dad liked to have a good time, he had drinks every once in a while, we celebrate birthdays all the time, you know, I think he was under undue influence of alcohol uh, when my brother went to see him and brought him a, a, a bottle and, and the next day he did his estate plan. So um, these are things that come up, unfortunately, uh, and, and um, you just want to plan for them. Okay, so if an event were to happen to you, do you have power of attorneys in place? Are they springing power of attorneys? Are they durable power of attorneys? You know, who's going to handle your affairs? Titling of assets. This, I think, for all individuals is the most important to understand. If you own an account with someone with joint tenants or rights of survivorship, then they own those assets if you die. It automatically goes to them, okay? They have equal title to them. If you have joint tenants in common, then they retain their percentage ownership of those assets. The first one avoids probate. The second one actually is meant to go through probate process. So that means a lot to those that are below the estate tax threshold. But for those that are above the estate tax threshold and you're trying to have enough money titled in your name in order to take advantage of the applicable exclusion, you've got to have enough. Uh, and you might want to change the titling of your assets to income versus rights of survivorship. So beneficiary designations, I'd say that's kind of tied with this one, and maybe, maybe this one should be above it. Um, if you happen to have fallen out of favor with a kid who is named primary in your retirement plan, if you happen to have had a life event and uh, gotten a divorce or changed, had a big change, and you forget to change your beneficiary designation, guess who gets that money? Regardless of what your will says. It supersedes your will or your estate planning document. And I have seen it happen. So make sure every five years when you're doing not only your will and your trust and your state documents that you're checking these beneficiary designations. Um, I'll just quickly touch on trust. Again, I mentioned they're just governing documents. They're, they're put in place for many different reasons, mainly to provide structure and management. Uh, I would say an orderly disposition of your, of your assets. Revocable living trusts. For tax purposes, you're still the owner, but you know you die, it doesn't go through uh, probate, and you can keep your privacy is one of the main reasons. And again, you know it's 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 there to have a trustee with a higher level of legal responsibility to carry out your wishes. Um, if you don't have a lot of assets, that's okay. In the scenario we talked about draining down to zero, I would say that's a really good retirement plan. They save 1.6 zero the day they die and live to 95. Good life. But it's still important to your loved ones, you know, it's your final document, to explain to them what values, you know, made me as a person, what is important to me, you know, were there charities involved that you're giving nominal amounts to that you wanted to demonstrate uh, at your death that were important to you. So I would implore you, you know, to go uh, seek counsel and execute some of these documents. And if you have considerable assets, Right now, the applicable exclusion is $5.43 million, and that's per person. So as a couple, you have to have, I would say, a, a pretty high net worth in order to, to fall into the estate uh, tax realm. But that's just right now. You know, we've seen Congress change that, mess with it, fool it around, um, move it around. So it's still important to plan as if there will always be an estate tax if you start to accumulate considerable um, assets. 
So that's really all I, all I have, 1027. We've got a few minutes for questions. I'll stick around. Uh, these are the resources that I've used in the presentation. We talked about Investopedia, CFP.net, Morningstar is where I got standard deviation, Social Security information. Um, and then I have the UVA's endowment. If anybody's interested, we're talking about how to compare investment. So it's not apples to apples, okay? They're in all the stuff that we talked about earlier. They're in every single investment class. They, they do different strategies even than individual investors can get to. But does anybody know what they've averaged over the last 20 years? I'll give you their annual report if you guess. 13%. Higher or lower than that, does anybody think? How much? 3%. Okay, it's 12 and a half. So if you don't mind passing. So 12 and a half percent over 20 years is a, is a very good return. And they compare themselves. They have a benchmark on their website, uvimco.com. And you can look at that blended index that they compare themselves against. Against we were talking about measuring sticks. Um, and then our office is, is gift planning here at the University of Virginia. So thank you all. Uh, these are my 12-week-old twins. Uh, you know, I, don't, I don't like making excuses, but you know, I was up till 4 a.m., and it wasn't because of reunions. But thank you all for your time. Jason, you have about 15 more minutes to take questions. Thank you, guys. Check one. Okay, only softballs. Do you have um, any recommendations on how to how to find a good um, trust? Like we we want to set up a trust for our daughter who has some disabilities. Yeah. And on. There's banks that have trusts, and you know I don't even know where to start in terms of finding like a reputable place that would actually do a good job executing the trust. Yeah, I mean, so you're not going to like what I have to say, but a lot of cold calling and a lot of rolling up your sleeve and asking the right questions. You know, um, do you have experience in managing trusts for disabled or families with a disabled child uh, needs uh, based trust and. You know, if they say yes, do it all day long, great. How many do you have? Yeah, how many have you done? How many do you oversee right now? Um, do you have any references, any people I could call? I mean, that's something we forget to ask. You know, I wish, you know, when I was a financial advisor, I didn't have any clients and I had a biology degree. So I always <laughs> said, hey, I got three clients now, and every single one of them is willing to talk to you and, and, and tell you what I do and how I do it. And um, so, yeah, there's, it's, I'm sorry, there's not an easy way. Um, but it is a quick call, you know. I think if they, they either want it in the business or they don't. Uh, when talking about the retirement number, uh, uh, specifically about the amount that you would expect to get from Social Security, mm -hmm. um, would you recommend um, a different approach to how much you weigh that expectation of that Social Security being actually paid out for someone who's going to retire in 30 years versus someone who's going to retire in 10 years? Um, he's asking about the Social Security number. I want to make sure I understand the, the question. Basically, how much can you can someone who's going to retire in thirty years really rely upon oh. that number? That number actually going to be there yeah. when you're doing you know this calculation of the retirement number? Yeah. 
It's a fair question. So how reliable is that number on the sheets that they're sending every year? Because there, there are some changes that they're debating now in Congress on the Social Security system. You know, my viewpoint is they're going to extend the number of when you can take your retirement. So right now, you know, 67 might go up to 70, might go up to longer. We're living longer. It makes sense to do it. It would help um, the health of that program. So, I mean, you can only plan for what you know. Uh, if you want to be more conservative and you have the viewpoint that at 38 or 14 in this case, $1,000, I think they're only going to give me 10, plug in 10, plan to save more. You know, that would be, that would be my advice. But it's, it's going to be around. I mean, there, there's a huge voting contingent that would, uh, that would uh, uh, go to Washington, D.C. kicking and screaming if they tried to get rid of it. But, yeah, there, there could be either the extended length of time and age uh, when you first can take the money. Uh, or they're going to decrease the amount. You get 80% of what, what you wrote. Good question. Other questions? What advice do you have for early retirement? Like, are there certain pitfalls do it. you should avoid? No. <laughs> <laughs> So if someone has retired early or is seeking, is, is trying to plan to retire early? Um, I mean, most of this planning is fairly complex. We get into all the issues that we, that we talked about. But uh, I think a gentleman said on the way in, you know, save early, save often. Uh, if your objective is in this equation, you know, you can actually put a number with it. If your objective is retire at 55... Can you, based on, have you done a budget? Have you determined your fixed expenses? Will those fixed expenses be the same at that age? And then add some variation. There's variable expenses that are in there. Come up with a guesstimate, how much I'll need per year, and then that'll determine what age you're going to retire. The more important thing is that 60-year span, whether you retire or not, you know, how are you going to take income and pay yourself instead of your job paying you? And I would use the rule of thumb of 4%. So can you take 4% from that number at 55 years old and live on that through your life expectancy? So at 4%, in theory, you can take from your good performance, so you're selling high and you're paying yourself, uh, and then you're always systematically rebalancing and having a, a sound investment portfolio. So I don't know if that, that helps, but that's what I would do. I would come up with how much do I think I'm going to need to spend and the, my target age, and then if you're investing for your objectives, then you're going to look at that entire span of time, and you're really going to think about, I'm going to stick in there through the ups and the downs. Even though I'm retired, I'm not going to let that affect me worrying because I got all of the asset classes, a well-rounded portfolio. I know what I own. I know why I own it, and I systematically rebalance. And so meeting with your advisor quarterly and talking about your investments and comprehensively once a year, at minimum, they should be giving you that right for paying them in addition to their job of coordinating all the other advisors that are involved. So if you have your attorney, your CPA, and your financial advisor who are different people, and they're all saying, you can do this based on this calculation, and here's the risk, and here's things to consider, way more confidence to retire at 55 than I would if my financial advisor says, sure, the money will last. And my CPAs over there saying, heck no, you know, I not, no, this is not going to last. And I know your comprehensive picture. They know investments. It doesn't seem like they're getting into comprehensive planning. Um, so I would get all three of them to weigh in, too, for that important decision. Other questions? 
Well, thank you very much again, Jason. And um, again, if you all wouldn't mind completing.